For the first time in about 10 years, the number of undocumented U.S. residents seems to have stabilized and in some states may be declining. Still, our best estimates indicate that California is home to more than 2.5 million undocumented immigrants, or about a quarter of the national total, and debate about immigration is as heated as ever. Today on K-Hump In-Depth, we'll talk with local immigrants about how they're navigating these times, and we'll go looking for some immigration facts, get advice from an immigration lawyer, and get an update on the local sanctuary city situation. Hi, I'm Chuck Rogers. And I'm Lindsay Battle. Welcome to K-Hum In-Depth, part two of our look at immigration. Thanks to our sponsor, Mr. Fish. Just recently, Arcata joined the ranks of sanctuary cities, limiting its willingness to help with enforcement of federal immigration laws. Not surprising for a progressive city like Arcata, but it was not a unanimous city council vote. One dissenting vote was cast, not against the concept, but against the label itself. Councilman Michael Winkler supported the policy idea, and he liked the initial verbiage of what the city council had put together for the ordinance. But when it came to voting the ordinance into law at the council meeting, he voted against it based solely upon its use of the term sanctuary city. This is what he had to say. So I think what we're really doing is taking a policy that we already have in existence for the police department unofficially and adopting it officially, and we did that a month ago. But it also included the phrase sanctuary city, which is what I was troubled by and wasn't able to support. I think that's raising a very dangerous red flag to the Trump administration. And I think Mr. Trump does not respect uh, federal rights and does not respect the Bill of Rights and saying, come and get us, we're a sanctuary city, and making us very visible in a way that provides no additional protection to, to immigrants. Local advocates for undocumented immigrants from the group Centro de Pueblo saw the passing of this ordinance in Arcata as a major victory. Steering Committee member Daniela Vargas had this to say. I don't understand how somebody coming to the country and trying to do the best for themselves and for their family is impeding on somebody else. I'm really pleased with Arcata and the decision they made to, to take this on. It shows that our voices are being taken into consideration just by the passing of this ordinance. As the sanctuary movement and the immigration debate continues, there are some changes occurring in the makeup of the undocumented population itself. Since about 2008, 2009, the beginning of the Great Recession, the estimated number of undocumented residents from Mexico is declining and the number from other regions is rising. I got a chance to sit down with a local friend who is an immigrant from the Middle East in Bahrain, but she is actually a citizen of Great Britain and she's in a very unique position here in the United States in that she doesn't have a green card, but she's able to work solely because she has a work visa. And if she were to ever leave the country, even though she's been here since she was a very small child, she would never be able to return. Her name is Sabina. And she talked a little bit about some of the challenges that she's faced being an immigrant here in the United States. 
people are often very surprised to hear I'm a British citizen uh, because I have an American accent. People don't often believe me. But I went to a Department of Defense school in Bahrain in the Middle East. It's adjacent to Saudi Arabia. And so people always ask me again, oh, so you're military. Nope, neither one of my parents is military. My father worked in banks and my mother worked in embassies. And my immigration started when uh, the source of it is very sensitive. It was, it came to the attention of my school counselors that my living situation at home was no longer safe and they urged my mother to do something about it. So she had family in California and we went through the process of shipping all of our treasured belongings to California. I understood what was going on. I didn't like it. I didn't want to have to move to a new place, but it became necessary. And we were very privileged in the sense that the U.S. Embassy that she worked for at the time, the ambassador expedited our process. And we came to the U.S. under advanced humanitarian parole. It's a protective status. And we would have been able to get our green cards on the spot. However, the lawyer that we hired was incompetent. Our case qualified for asylum. And that's one thing I think that people who want to come to the U.S. find very difficult is that you do need the help of lawyers. You do need the help of a legal advisor. And it costs so much money. And when we came to the States, the, the filing fees, the initial filing fees are something that I did not understand until I moved away from my family and had to start filling out forms on my own. For example, every year I file for my work permit that allows me to legally work in the U.S. At this point, it is $410. If you make a single mistake on that form, you have to refile it and give the U.S. government another $410. They're so complicated. They take you in circles. And definitely for people who come to this country and don't speak English, it's, uh, it's, it's immensely unfair. The uh, USCIS... They provide multiple languages, but there are just things that you don't understand on there. When you immigrate to a country, your life becomes money and it becomes paperwork. And if you lose any of that paperwork, your process could fall apart. And sometimes if you don't have a lawyer, you don't know about the rules. For example, when we first got here, we started our green card process and the lawyer neglected to tell my mother that the rule at the time was that when I turned 21 in the U.S. in the middle of a green card process, I aged out of it. All of the money spent on my green card process, all of the money to the lawyer, everything, it's like it evaporated. So I was stuck in limbo. My mother and my brother both have their green cards. The reason I have never gotten around to it is time and also getting the money together. But as of right now, the filing fee for a green card is $1,077 approximately. One of the things that I don't think a lot of Americans understand, there's just a lack of perspective and sympathy for people trying to remove themselves from far more terrifying situations than my own and having to do it with nothing. And it's a lack of compassion that it is overwhelming to feel it every single day here. You, you hear of a country that is a melting pot. You hear of a country that prides itself on freedom and community and, and togetherness and patriotism. And when you come to the U.S. from another country, you see the fear in people of other people who just want their lives to be better. And it makes no sense to me.
Do you ever go out of the country? I am unable to. I have, and this is, it's extremely dehumanizing to say it, I have an alien identification number, which I have to present with all of my immigration paperwork. And if I decide to leave the country because I do not have a green card, my humanitarian parole status will be surrendered and I have to, I have to physically surrender my alien identification card to someone at the airport. And if I try to come back in, it's like that entire portion of my life would have to start all over all over again. Wow. It is frustrating to me because I have family. My father lives overseas. I rarely get to see my father. And one of my biggest fears is if something happens to my father overseas, I can't go see him. I can't go see any of my family overseas if anything happens to them because I would have to surrender my entire status, everything. All my work, all my academics, everything would just go into thin air. My entire life is tied to my immigration status. And as soon as I leave the country, it's gone. Something really striking about Sabina's story and what Sabina had to say to me, Chuck, was how many of us haven't had these hands-on kind of experiences with immigration. We haven't tried to immigrate and work in other countries. And so we're not coming from this place of having the empathy or knowing what it's like to have to flee these sometimes really deadly, dangerous situations. And um, like Sabina had said, despite having to flee a dangerous situation, at least her family had those resources and were able to get things together and came from a place of being highly educated. And still they're encountering all these problems with the legal process and getting all of their immigration paperwork in line. So you had a chance to sit down with some really interesting folks who do things like gather facts and they also gather facts on popular opinion, right? Yeah, they do. And the person I talked to is a numbers guy. Uh, In this era of alternative facts, thankfully, there are those who still try to get things right. So I went to Joe Hayes. He's with the Public Policy Institute of California. And that's an organization that gathers as much information as it can from its own research and from other research that it can find to try to give us a snapshot of reality in this state. California is home to between... Uh, 2.35 and 2.6 million undocumented immigrants. And nationwide, the total is at about uh, 11.1 million. It's uh, nearly a quarter of the nation's undocumented total. Interestingly, though, I think a lot of people don't realize that the trend lines are actually either stable or going down. Do you know what they attribute the uh, stabilization uh, of those numbers to? Uh, a lot of it has to do with uh, with employment opportunities. Um you know, the fact is that people come here to work, whether they're coming legally or illegally. So the reduction in the um, job opportunities that accompanied the Great Recession had a lot to do with the drop-off. Uh, since then, uh, obviously, we've seen increased enforcement. There have been voluntary returns uh, due to the economic situation and, and fewer new migrants uh, due to the economic situation as well. So those, I think those have all contributed to the decline. Another interesting thing about the population of undocumented immigrants, and I think this is nationwide, not just uh, statewide, But something like two-thirds of them have been in the U.S. uh, for 9, 10, 11 years or more, something like that? 
That's right, yeah. These are uh, Center for Migration Studies estimates that we see that about 66% of undocumented immigrants have lived uh, here for 10 or more years, and that portion appears to be increasing. PPIC did a study about, about 15 years ago now, uh, looking specifically at undocumented immigrants from Mexico and, and the border enforcement efforts that were in place at that time, around the 2000-2001, they found that as it gets more difficult to cross the border, fewer people are going back and forth over the border. Migration tends to be cyclical. Uh, people come for, for a period of time to work, and then they return home, come again the next year. Uh, as that gets more difficult to do, people uh, who are coming with, without uh, proper documents to work will come and then stay here. That contributes to the, the number of people who are, are here for a longer period of time. They're reluctant to go back and, and face uh, the risk of being caught on the return. And still, uh, with all of these numbers, most of the undocumented immigrants in California, and I suppose the U.S. as well, come from Latin America, including Mexico, and I assume uh, the majority of those are from Mexico? Right. So the 2014 estimate that the Pew Research Center sent out said that they estimated 71% of California's undocumented population was from Mexico. The Center for Migration Studies estimate is close to that. It's 68% from Mexico. Mm-hmm. 13% from Asia, though. I, I don't know that people realize there are that many from Asia. Right. And that that's uh, been a trend that we've seen nationwide and, and in California as well, that uh, more and more uh, of the undocumented population are coming from Asia rather than Latin America. We hear a lot about undocumented immigrants coming, especially to California, as you mentioned earlier in our conversation, to work. Where do they work? What segments of the economy are we most likely to find undocumented immigrants? In California, undocumented immigrants work disproportionately in agriculture, construction, and manufacturing. Uh, and it's worth pointing out that, that uh, undocumented immigrants constitute uh, 9% of the, of the California workforce. That's about a 1.75% million undocumented immigrants working in the California labor force. Nearly 10% of the California workforce? That's right. Yeah, it's the second highest statewide concentration of undocumented workers, Nevada being the highest at 10.4%. Another thing that I thought was fascinating in your report was that something over 10 to 12% of California school children have, uh, is it at least one undocumented parent? Am I getting that right? Right. And again, those are Pew Research Center estimates. 12.3% of uh, California's K-12 school children have an undocumented parent. And nationwide, also, um, it's more than 5 million children have an undocumented parent. And most of those, it's, it's worth pointing out, most of those kids are um, U.S. citizens themselves, um, usually by dint of having been born here. I see. So the undocumented parent would have been here, uh, probably working here, later had the child, the child born here in the U.S. then as a U.S. citizen. That's the most common scenario. Right. Uh, so 79% nationwide of children uh, with an undocumented parent are themselves mm-hmm. U.S. citizens. And that's, that's something that, that not a lot of people recognize at first blush, that when we're tallying up the number of undocumented residents of the state, if you were actually to tally up the number of households, uh, the, the great number of households have uh, members of, of mixed immigration status that, that undocumented immigrants live in the same household with, with U.S. citizens. One thing that even surprised Joe Hayes is how consistent the California support remains for a path to legal status. More than 80% of Californians want us to figure this out so that, with certain provisions, undocumented residents can stay here legally. And as Joe mentioned, nearly two-thirds of U.S. undocumented residents have been here for 10 years or more. And that's just one factor that illustrates how deeply complex the immigration story is. 
I had the opportunity to sit down with Fulano de Tal, who is here illegally and has been here illegally for more than a decade, who's been married to a U.S. citizen for more than a decade, who escaped a pretty dangerous situation in Mexico when he was only nine years old, about a week before he and his family moved to the States his neighbor was burned alive. My family uh, basically decided to move here because we had a lot of family members that were already living in the U.S. and then um, the corruption that was happening in Mexico was really bad. There was death threats to our family, including myself being a nine-year-old kid threatened to be burned alive. So that was an easy choice for my dad to say, let's get out of here. Sounds fairly reasonable reason to want to not stay someplace. And so when you came to the States, what did that feel like to you? It was a completely different idea of what I had. You know, just watching TV, you could sometimes get an idea of what it was, but then once you're actually living it, it was different, but it felt really nice. It felt really, really good. There was a lot of commodities that we appreciated more. Do you feel like Mexico is still your home? Is that a place that you still feel a connection with, or do you feel like the United States is more your home? I feel 50-50. I think definitely Mexico is always in my heart, but I've always felt American since I've been here longer than I've been in Mexico. You know, even if I go to Mexico, I always feel like an outsider, and here I feel like at home. You're married to someone who was born in the States. Yes, she's a U.S. citizen. Regina, we'll call her. Where did you end up meeting Regina? We met in Central California in 2000, so we've been together for 17 years. Wow, that's a long time. Yeah. And how long have you been married? 14. Wow. And so... Most people assume that when you are married to someone who is a U.S. citizen, then you automatically become a U.S. citizen. Why are you not a documented U.S. citizen? I am documented. I just didn't get the uh, uh, green card. And it's all because of the way that the system is written down in paper. Basically, I didn't qualify because of... Um, the time when I overstayed my visa and then I was given a voluntary departure and then I went back to Mexico for a year and came back illegally and then since I came back illegally that kind of just messed everything up. So I had a petition for about 17 years before I even married my wife I already had a petition and I was on the waiting list forever and ever. And then I married my wife, and the lawyers and immigration themselves told me to cancel that petition and start a new one with my wife because she was a U.S. citizen. They told me it would be faster. So they made me cancel the other petition, and I started a new one with my wife, which then they uh, did not approve because of the way that I came back in illegally. So basically, it's not as easy as it sounds. For most of us, it's, it's hard. Did they say anything about the original petition that you had made? Was was there something about canceling that that has had an effect on you maintaining your green card here? Actually, the immigration officer, uh, once he made me cancel everything, when I saw him the next time with my new petition, he actually told me that if I would have kept my old one, that I've had a better chance. And he was the one that actually told me to cancel it. Uh, so I kind of got screwed there. And then he actually denied my, my green card. It was the same officer? 
Yes, same guy. Wow. So where does that put you with a family and a wife that you've been with for a long time and you've lived in the United States for most of your life? Do you have hope that you will ever get a green card or how do you feel about your current situation? Uh, It's pretty frustrating. I mean, um, when he actually denied my case, he said that I, I could either go to court and try to fight it, but the way he described everything, he was like, you're definitely not going to get anything, you're just going to get kicked out. So he uh, he advised me not to go to court. So I just, you know, did what he told me. He literally told me, uh, I'm quoting this, he said, sit back, lay back, and wait until the government does something. And so far, Obama didn't get to do anything about it. And now that Trump is out, it feels even worse. I'm just kind of always looking out the door to see if they're going to come and get me or not. That's got to be really stressful for you and your family. Do you ever think about how different your life might be if this wasn't um, this kind of secret that you were living with? It's always on my mind. I mean, I could have gone to college. I could have done sports in high school. I could have done a lot of different things. If I wasn't always without a social security, I I couldn't do a lot of things. I couldn't drive for many, many years. It's always there on my mind. And even now it's still there every day. I go through it. I see my family growing and, you know, I don't know if I'll get kicked out the next day or that same day or it's pretty frustrating. It's been a few months since Trump came out and I haven't gotten kicked out. I don't have any criminal records and I have always paid my taxes. Uh, and I don't really do anything bad, so I, I, I don't feel like they're coming to get me because I don't have criminal records, but, you know, it's happening every day out there. They're getting everybody they want. They don't really necessarily have to have a criminal background to get kicked out. At the end, you know, if you're just driving somewhere and you get pulled over for a light or whatever, and whoever gets you, if, if he's not immigrant-friendly, then he's probably going to want to put your name out there for someone to get you. So going to what you bring up, being pulled over, for instance, there are many, many cities that are talking about sanctuary city legislation and um, and the state of California actually is talking about becoming a sanctuary state. As someone who is here, who is directly affected by these kind of legislations, how much does that put you at ease, the idea of living in a sanctuary state in the state of California or you living in a city that is a sanctuary city, is that something that is helpful to you or does that relieve any of the stress, I guess is what I'm asking? It does relieve some of the stress, but but there's only so much that the government can do to prevent someone to really come and get you. Um, it feels really good. It's protecting people like myself, but once things get serious and something happens to someone, then there's only so much they can do. If you don't have a social security card and, you know, you have a family, does that affect your work? For the first few years when I began working in the U.S., I was working with a made-up social security, something I just came up with right there on the spot. And then I worked with that for a few years until uh, I actually got a permit to work while I started my petition. So I was working for a year legally, so they gave me a social security and a permit to work. Uh, It didn't get approved, 
I, I got to work with that for a while. And then basically every company that I've worked for, I've always been honest. I, I tell them right from the get-go that, you know, my status is either pending or I have a petition going and I show them proof that I have papers working. And everybody so far has been always great trying to support me on, you know, a lot of them have actually offered to do something and try to petition me to the government. But that does not help everybody, even the lawyers. They have all told me that the easiest way was to go through my wife because she's a U.S. citizen. My parents tried to petition me, but I was already too old. Uh, they're both U.S. citizens now. My sisters and brothers are U.S. citizens. None of them have criminal records. Everybody pays taxes. We're just normal people with a broken system that we can't really do anything about. Yeah, it does affect my work, obviously. Um, a lot of companies, you know, once I tell them, they're like, well, okay, maybe we'll think about it. And then since they, they told me to, immigration told me to sit back, relax, and don't do anything stupid, I don't, I don't go anymore, um, you know, getting jobs with fake socials or anything. I haven't done anything like that. So I just, basically, I, I still pay taxes for all my contracts that I get. Uh, I'm a private contractor and about 50 to 60 percent of what I w do for work it's to benefit the government including the Navy, the Army and different other agencies for the government so at the end a lot of them know about it and they still hire me to do the job knowing what my situation is so go figure that one. <laughs> Until we come up with some kind of workable immigration reform, Chuck, many folks who are here, either undocumented or here illegally, do face the real risk of being deported. And as Fulano was telling me, uh, the paranoia and the fear became more real for him as a result of this new administration. But the United States government does continue to benefit from people like Fulano de Tal, who is here oftentimes working for the United States government, doing jobs that other people don't know how to do or don't want to do. And these government agencies are hiring him knowing full well. He's disclosing his immigration status. They are hiring someone who's working illegally. And they're coming up with very clever accounting ways to pay him and to cover for themselves so that other people don't know he's getting paid for the job that he's doing for the United States government. Um, he's paid taxes the entire time that he's lived and worked in the United States and just kind of waiting around to see what's going to be going on since his petition has been denied. He's just waiting in limbo and doesn't know whether he'll be deported or not. So following on that, I had a chance to talk with an immigration lawyer, Shuming Cheer, with the nonprofit National Immigration Law Center in Los Angeles. And I would say that my takeaway is that hers is a hopeful outlook and message. She has some advice for undocumented residents. And she talked to me a little bit about how some legal challenges to immigration enforcement can be successful, depending on the person targeted by ICE, their personal background while they're here, and the circumstances of their arrest or detention. 
instance, looking at the person's ties to the U.S., whether they have U.S. citizen family members, if they've been working here, if they own a business, and also to see if there's any humanitarian factors, Mm -hmm. such as a fear of returning to the home country because they fear they're going to be harmed in some way or if somebody has been the survivor of a crime. Those are all factors that uh, would potentially be helpful in terms of enabling a person to stay in the U.S., So when an undocumented immigrant comes to you and they say or you find out through maybe a family member or friend that someone has been detained by ICE, the fact that they don't have legal status uh, doesn't deter you from the beginning. There are a lot of things that you may be able to convince a court are relevant enough to allow this person to stay. Is that right? Right. Um, Just because a person's facing deportation doesn't mean that they will automatically be deported. They can raise defenses in immigration court and ask for different ways to stay in the U.S., either temporarily or permanently with a green card. And part of what I do is to assess whether they have those defenses available to them. What kind of costs are they facing, one? And two, are there organizations such as yours and others uh, that they can go to where they can get a little bit of cost relief to help them out? Yes, it's very expensive for somebody to fight their deportation case. First, there might be some applications that they file, and those applications have fees. For instance, somebody who's applying for the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program uh, would pay close to $500. People who are filling out the green card applications would would pay more than that, um, closer to 1000 So it can be very costly, and often people put off applying for um, certain types of relief because they don't have the money for the applications. And on top of that, if a person is not fortunate enough to have a free attorney, if they have to pay for an attorney, that would run into the thousands, if not tens of thousands of dollars. There's a fairly high percentage of families in California of legal status, but who may have one or more undocumented immigrants living with them or living near them that they know of and they're helping to support. As an attorney, what do you advise both the family with legal status and the undocumented immigrant who may be living in that household or nearby to do so that everyone is as protected as they can be in a situation like that? Yeah, I mean, I do urge both those groups of people to really know their rights. And that's just as important for U.S. citizens as it is for undocumented people because if people are in a household together and ICE knocks on the door, it might be the U.S. citizen who goes to the door. So they, it's important for them to know, too, that they do not have to open the door unless ICE has a valid warrant signed by a judge. Also, I recommend that the undocumented person get a screening as quickly as possible from an immigration lawyer, especially if they've had a prior deportation order. Let's go back to that knock on the door that you mentioned there. Let's say the legal citizen does answer that knock on the door and it is ICE. Is that person who answered the door at some legal risk for harboring an undocumented immigrant or is ICE not pursuing that kind of thing? So we haven't heard recent reports of ICE bringing harboring charges. I mean, they have brought those charges in the past. At a home, again, for ICE to even enter a home, they would need a valid warrant signed by a judge. And I've never heard of them actually having that kind of a warrant. So if they have no legal justification to enter in the first place, so I think it'd be much harder for them to to bring any kind of harboring charges. Right. And then one other follow-up on that last uh, statement of yours. You mentioned uh, people should know their legal rights. uh, And very basically, 
what are those legal rights uh, other than just, you know, the right to counsel for sure? And the right to remain silent. So if people are stopped by ICE, they don't have to answer questions uh, and especially should not answer any questions about where they were born or when they entered the U.S. or their status. People also have the right to not sign any documents. And that's related to what you mentioned, um, the right to counsel. People should not sign any documents until they speak to a lawyer because we know that ICE will often pressure people to give up their rights and give up their, um, their ability to see a judge. I'm really glad we got to talk to an attorney with an expertise in this area. And although she doesn't see meaningful immigration reform on the horizon, at least not until there are political changes in Washington, one thing she does remind us of is that the judiciary in this state and country still is independent from ICE, and that's a good thing. So something else, Chuck, that I'm taking away from her advice is that being willing to be part of a personal response team for friends of mine who are undocumented and vouching for their contributions to our community and their right to uh, to live a good life. That is an important part of being a solution to these immigration issues currently. We want to thank all of our guests for being willing to speak frankly about a difficult topic. And we're grateful to our sponsor, Mr. Fish, for helping make this program possible. Please join us again next month for another installment of K-Hum In-Depth. Thank you for listening. If you or your business would like to become a sponsor of K-Hum In-Depth, email advertise at khum.com.